It's my very great privilege to open the Word of God with you this morning and to uh, study together. We are making our way through chapter 12 of the book of Hebrews, and we have come to the very end of this chapter. We are looking at verses 25 to 29. So take your Bibles and turn there, if you will, to Hebrews 12, 25. And you might want to find your place at Haggai chapter 2, the minor prophet as well, just in preparation. We're going to get into some Old Testament history today, and I'm excited to share that with you. Our first hymn this morning was Frances Havergill's Like a River Glorious. She wrote it in 1874 during a time when she was hit with a severe lung condition, and She thought she was going to die. Unbelievers that were part of her life were astounded at how calm she was about the prospects of dying, as if to welcome it. She told everyone why this was the case in this hymn, which she wrote after she recovered. Now, it came to my mind when I was studying our text for this morning in Hebrews 12, because to me it sums up in a phrase, what verses 25 to 29 are really all about. Stayed upon Jehovah. The use of the word stayed in the title is archaic for us. Then, in the 1800s, to be stayed on something meant to be fixed in it or settled in it and drawing strength from it. uh, Havergal was speaking, of course, of being fixed in God and gaining strength from him. Today, we would simply say abide in him. And though the basis of her song comes from an Old Testament text, she might as well have been talking about John 15. There Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, it is that... uh, It is is he who bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. Stayed on God. Stayed on God is also the complete opposite of drifting away from God, not being moored in him, and it fits well not only with the theme the entire book of Hebrews, but with the teaching of our passage. The writer now teaches us that Christians are stayed on God, that is, they abide in him when they are obedient, courageous, and thankful. When they are obedient, courageous, and thankful. Let's look at those one at a time. Obey the Lord, the writer says, for those who reject him will not escape his wrath. Obey the Lord, For those who reject him will not escape his wrath. That's the essence of verse 25. Let me read it for you. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? It should be obvious to us who's speaking and what he is saying and who is refusing him since We left off in our study last time with verse 24, where the writer tells us that the sprinkled blood of Jesus speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. 
So Jesus is the obvious speaker, and he speaks through his redemptive action. That is the propitiatory act of sacrifice for the sins of his people. Now, another way to say this is that God is speaking to us through the redemption that he has freely provided in Christ. In a word, the gospel. And that, and this is exactly what the writer says in his opening words to this letter. In chapter 1, verse 2, he says, In these last days, God has spoken to us by his Son. And that's what we're talking about. God is speaking, speaking through his Son. It is the message of the gospel, eternal life, the words of eternal life. And we should not refuse him. In fact, the writer also warns us several times in this book not to refuse God's words of eternal life. If we do, we're no better than unrighteous Israel, and we experience God's wrath. We're used to the writer's argument from lesser to greater. If they receive God's wrath because they refuse to listen to all that God spoke to them at Sinai, How much more severe a judgment do we stand to receive if we refuse to listen to the gospel that God spoke to us from heaven through his Son? The answer should be obvious, a whole lot more. If we neglect so great a salvation, we face a great judgment. We rebel against the living God. We treat with contempt the goodness of God's word of grace. We trample underfoot the blood of the covenant. The warning from Sinai was certainly stiff, but the warning from heaven is stiffer because we have more truth and more responsibility. And the writer meets any notion of apostasy with this argument. The warning against apostasy under the Old Covenant was terrible enough, but it is greater still when it happens under the New Covenant. Don't let it happen to you, the writer says. Well, verse 25, <clears throat> it seems to me, with its command not to refuse God who speaks to us, is saying, in essence, listen to God's word, which really means obey God. The writer, of course, states it here neg- negatively because he wants to incorporate the warning. But the positive way to, to put this is obey, or as James puts it in his epistle, be doers of the word, not hearers only. And, that, and, and this makes all the sense in the world for those of us who are stayed on Christ, who have settled in him and are solidly grounded in our relationship with Christ, who look to him for life, for sustenance, for strength, and for confirmation for our godly living. You see, those to whom the, the writer spoke were listening to other voices, back in the Old Testament, in their, I'm sorry, uh, here in the first century, in their particular situations, the voices seemed kinder. They seemed gentler, more relational, more logical. They wanted counsel that would alleviate their trials and persecution, give them peace and relieve their stress. But every voice besides God's that pretends to speak expertly on life and how it should be lived is deceptive. It makes promises that it cannot keep, and it will steer you away from apostolic truth, like the serpent who counseled Adam in Genesis 3, like Cain's murderous heart did, like Job's three friends. 
like Judas's 30 pieces of silver. God's word can be uncomfortable at times, yes, but so can braces and casts that set what's crooked straight. Some find God's word sharp and know it to cut, but so is the surgeon's scalpel that removes cancerous tumors from the body. The word's prescription for a clean conscience can be abrasive, but so is bleach that alone can kill harmful bacteria and moles. Those who are fixed in Christ will look to no other and listen to no other for life and godliness. Stop listening to other voices out there, no matter how kind their tone or how inviting their content. Your milk, your meat is to do the will of God, and our great hope is in its promises. Christians are stayed upon God when they are obedient. Not just obedient, also courageous. Be courageous, the writer says, for God's promise to you of future blessing is eternal. Be courageous, for God's promise to you of future blessing is eternal. That's verses 26 and 27. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. What an odd piece of text this is. It sounds prophetic and ominous, doesn't it? What what does it mean, you may wonder? Well, believe it or not, it's a word of encouragement about God's promised eternal life. How's that? Yes, his promise of eternal life. Let's begin at verse 26. And let's take our time through this, because I, I really want to show you how, how encouraging this, this really is. Verse 26 is a direct quote from the prophet Haggai. We'll read from him in just a moment, but first let's consider the historical setting of this minor prophet. It's very important. After King Solomon died, Israel had a civil war and split into two kingdoms. You had Israel in the north and Judah in the south. Both ignored God's word, so God took them both out of the land and into captivity. Israel was the first to go. God brought Assyria against her in 721 B.C. 135 years later, in 586 B.C., God sent the dreaded Babylonians to take Judah. God would have Judah remain in captivity 50 years before bringing some of Judah back to rebuild. Of course, it would be 70 years total before he would release them from captivity. So in 539, follow me on this, 539 BC, Cyrus the Great of Persia conquers Babylon and absorbs it into the Persian Empire. Approximately one year after that, Cyrus then drafts a proclamation that allowed 50,000 Jews to return to Jerusalem for the express purpose of rebuilding their temple and their wall. They went under the civil leadership of Zerubbabel, who would have become king had the Babylonians not invaded Jerusalem. He was in charge of governing the returning exiles, and for their spiritual guidance, God appointed a man named Joshua, the high priest. 
The details of all of this, by the way, you'll find in Ezra and Nehemiah. Now, this building project was not without its problems. Of course, all projects have hang-ups. One was the opposition from the neighboring nations which slowed down the work. But what was more discouraging, what was more discouraging to the Jews that eventually stopped them from building was a defeatist mentality that they developed. What do you mean? I mean, they developed a morbid view of the past, of the good old days when they enjoyed sweet times of peace and vibrant worship at the temple. They began to pine for those days again so intensely that they actually lost all hope of the present. That's right. Here's how this happened. Here's how this happened. They started working on the temple, laying its foundation, and a good many of them who were old enough to remember the way it used to be before they went into exile, they would have been about 60 at this time now, they started comparing the glorious state of the temple then to its current pathetic state with only its foundation set in place. That created in them homesickness for the way things used to be. And it became so debilitating that they abandoned the work altogether. In other words, they felt that nothing they did would ever compare to the glory of what they had. So what's the use of trying? Now in Ezra chapter 3 verse 12... Ezra captures their maudlin self-pity that plagued them shortly after construction began on the temple. Here it is. Many of the priests and Levites and heads of of fathers' households, the old men who had seen the first temple, wept with a loud voice when the foundation of this house was laid before their eyes. Now just to be clear, they were not weeping for joy. Verse 13 makes that abundantly clear. They were sad. They were defeated. And you can understand that, right? These old guys had enjoyed Yahwism in its heyday when they were just teenagers. They witnessed God's Shekinah glory beam into the temple and ignite the altar. They got caught up in the throng of worshipers and were awed by the display of God's dwelling in the midst of his people. But now look at them. They're a remnant, a smaller, weaker version of their former selves. The temple is only a foundation. God's Shekinah glory isn't there. The ark isn't there. The riches of David and Solomon aren't there. By the way, let me just digress for a moment. Many Christians underestimate greatly the importance of the temple in the lives of the Israelites. It is the only place that God met with them forgave their sins, displayed his glory. It was the center of their communal life where people praise God publicly in the assembly. Chronicles reveals elaborate protocol for temple worship that David devised. It included Levitical singers, liturgical dancers, people assigned just to praise God. We might say that without the temple, there is no Israel. And you know what? Practically speaking, that's true. First Kings chapter 8, verses 44 and 45. Listen to this. When your people go to war against their enemies, wherever you send them, and when they pray to the Lord 
toward the city you have chosen and the temple I have built for your name, then hear from heaven their prayer and their plea and uphold their cause. Pray toward the temple. That was the best they could do. When they're out of the temple and they're way in a foreign land, the best they could do was pray in its direction because everything took place at the temple. It's no surprise that when young Daniel found himself in a foreign land with no, no more temple, the most he could do was to pray facing toward Jerusalem where the temple used to be. It was his way of showing his desire to commune with God in God's acceptable way. Even in Jesus' day, the temple was the only place that Jews and God-fearing Gentiles could worship on the Day of Atonement and the three major feasts of Israel, Passover, Pentecost, and Booths, or Sukkoth. We all remember the story of the Ethiopian eunuch. Remember that Philip witnessed to him on his way back from Jerusalem. What was he doing there? Well, he was a God-fearer. He made an arduous pilgrimage all the way from Ethiopia up to Jerusalem, for one of the major feasts that could only be kept at the temple. So it was very important. Now, back to Haggai and the historical background. Fifty years have passed. These exiles return to the site of the former glory of Yahwism. And you would think that after 50 years of no formal worship, no temple, no sacrifice, no word from God, they would be elated at the prospects of rebuilding again. God made good on his promise to bring them back. He moved the heart of a pagan king to grant them permission to return and to rebuild, to build their nation and their temple. And excitement, though, was short-lived. For the older generation, once they started comparing their present context to the good old days, their nostalgia for Israel's glorious path, a past, rather than motivating them to build, overwhelm them and choke them and depleted their energy. Work on the temple eventually came to a grinding halt and it remained stagnant for 16 long years. Here's where Haggai comes in. God sent him to stir up the people to finish the temple and the wall and to get their spiritual priorities straight. But this time, God addresses the same morbid view of the past so that it doesn't defeat them as it did the first round of exiles. Listen, listen. chapter 2, verses 6 to 9, confirms our assessment of the situation. On the 21st of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shatiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, saying, Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how long do you see it? I'm sorry, and how do you see it now? Does it not seem to you like nothing in comparison? This is God speaking, God asking this question. It's a rhetorical question. The answer is, yeah, it fails in comparison. Can you see what's going on here? The Lord himself essentially says, I know what many of you are feeling. You see before you a temple foundation that has sat there, untouched for 16 years, and 
And you're comparing it to the way you remember it from your youth and how it impacted you then. You're saying to yourselves, look at it now. Nothing but a foundation. It will never be the same again. Oh, would to God that it could be the way it was 50 years ago. This is exactly how the first group of exiles felt 16 years ago, and it stopped them dead in their tracks. Now this group faces the same kind of discouragement. So God tells them to stop thinking this way. It was wrong for those who did it 16 years prior, and it is still wrong. If it was God's intention to bring the nation back to rebuild the temple, then it was surely sinful for those Israelites then to have let themselves become defeated and discouraged about the work. And it would be wrong and sinful for this round of exiles to do the same. Haggai shows us that one of the things that can derail believers discourage them, pull them off course and off their spiritual game, is a morbid view of the past. More proof of this comes from verse 4 and following, and it's here that we find God's solution to warding off this morbid view of the past. God continues, But now take courage, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Take courage also, Joshua, son of Jehozadak the high priest, and all of you people of the land take courage, declares the Lord, and work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of armies. So God gives the command to take courage three times in one verse. He commands the political leadership, the spiritual leadership, and the people, the laity. They were all to take courage and work. Take courage and work. The first group of returning exiles had become so homesick for the good old days that they gave up. God says to the second wave of exiles, don't let that happen to you. Don't be defeated. Take courage and work. Now let's ask the question that some of them might have well been asking themselves, and that is, what good reason do we have to do this? God tells them in the very same breath, because I am with you declares the Lord of armies. That's why. In what way was God with them? Well, we can argue that God was with their building project and would prosper it since he led King Cyrus to let them go and do it in the first place. But according to the immediate context, context is so very important, God was with them in a covenantal sense. Let's read on, verse 5. As for the promise which I made you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Do not fear. Interesting. God made a promise to Israel a long time ago that he intended to keep. And the way that he would keep it to the end was by bringing his people back to the land out of captivity to rebuild the temple and the wall. That was a past covenantal promise. We find it in Leviticus 26. We find it in 2 Chronicles 36, in Jeremiah 25. In Isaiah 44, the prophecy is extended even to God's act of bringing the exiles back to Jerusalem to rebuild it. He says, Who says of Jerusalem it shall be inhabited of the towns of Judah? They shall rebuild, and of their ruins I will restore them. Who says to the watery deep, be dry, and I will dry up your streams. Who says to Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and will accomplish 
all that I please. He will say of Jerusalem, let it be rebuilt, and of the temple, let its foundation be laid. So we see so far from Haggai that the Lord reminds the people of his promise to deliver them and to rebuild them in order to encourage them. Okay, you're getting the idea. This is, this is encouraging. This is a word of encouragement, this whole scene. God is fulfilling his promise to them right before their eyes. Now, there is more to God's solution for their mental defeat, for their morbid view of the past. And it has to do with another promise, but this time it is a promise of future blessing. And it fits the theme of Hebrews, which is why the writer uses Haggai. We find it in uh, chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. For this is what the Lord of armies says. Once more, in a little while, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea, also the dry land. I will shake all the nations, and they will come with the wealth of all nations. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of armies. Now, what does all that mean? How does it encourage the returning exiles? And how does the writer of Hebrews, who quotes part of it, use it to encourage his audience and us in the New Covenant? I want to answer all of these questions. Haggai refers to the Lord of Armies. I love that title. That is the God who fights for his people. God shakes the earth once more, he says, through his prophet Haggai. He shook it at Sinai when he cut the covenant with Israel, you remember. But there is is the implication that something more is going to happen. God will shake not only the earth and the heavens, but he'll also shake the sea, the dry land, the nations. What we have here is really a hyperbolic or exaggerated way for God to refer to the future work he will do through the long-anticipated Messiah. Messiah will gather God's elect Jews from all of the nations who will come with elect Gentiles, here referred to as the wealth of nations. In other words, redeemed Israelites come with the spoils of the nations in which they were captive, and the spoils are figurative for the individuals who have been redeemed. Together they will constitute the one people of God who, as we argued already from Hebrews, is the heavenly tabernacle. They will be the expression of God's glory in heaven someday. What we have in these two verses, I believe, is God's reference to the consummation of the new covenant that was already prophesied by Jeremiah that Haggai's audience knew. And how does this promise of future blessing encourage the exiles to rebuild an earthly temple? Well, we know, as they did, that the earthly temple stood as a copy of the temple of heaven. And until the new covenant was established through Messiah, the earthly temple had to stand and it had to be in use. So the immediate fulfillment of Haggai's prophecy was the rebuilding of the earthly temple. This was the second temple, which Herod then eventually expands so that by the time Jesus comes on the historical scene, it was more splendid and more glorious than Solomon's. And both Jews and God-fearing Gentiles came from all over the Roman Empire to worship there. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> but understand that 
It was always meant, this earthly temple, to point to the greater heavenly tabernacle, which is also part of Haggai's prophecy. Through the work of Christ, God would bring all true believers, both Jews and Gentiles, into one people of God that would be the expression of his glory and constitute the heavenly temple. Our understanding of Haggai 2.6 is certainly correct because this is how the writer of Hebrews understood it. If you go back to Hebrews chapter 12, in verse 26, the writer quotes Haggai 2.6, this passage that we just read, but he also incorporates into his quotation his interpretation of the quotation, which New Testament writers often do, which is the greater fulfillment in Christ since the earthly temple had already been built. He has in his sights the heavenly temple now. He says, Once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. And then explains that the, word, the words once more indicate the removal, removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. What he means is this, while God shook the mountain at which he cut the old covenant with Israel that eventually established a temple that housed his glory, God will soon bring to completion his heavenly temple through Christ's work, which will have a huge global historical and cosmic impact. Even the first advent of Christ had this very global, historical, cosmic impact. His incarnation, his public ministry, his crosswork, his resurrection. God impacted history. He affected the normal course of life with the miraculous, and he stirred the heavens when he sent Christ the first time. Christ's second coming will have an even greater impact on the heavens and the earth and the nations. The New Testament describes that a phase of Haggai's prophecy in, in terms of divine sifting. God will sift everything, all that's temporal, all that's earthly, sinful, until it all falls away, leaving only what really matters, and that is eternal life. Jesus says in Matthew 3.12, his winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with an unquenchable fire. Second Peter 3 provides a sobering glimpse of the end of time when God will redeem all things, the world, the universe, all created matter will be transformed by God's redemptive fire. By the same word, Peter says, the present heavens and the earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Bottom line with Haggai's audience, is that God encouraged the returning exiles, stirred them up by directing their gaze away from the past and forward to the promise of his future kingdom 
that is eternal and cannot be shaken. And this is the same promise that the writer of Hebrews uses to stir up his audience into godly action. And the same promise is for us as well to keep us from drifting. Peter would say later in chapter 1 of his first epistle, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver and gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Eternal. <clears throat> it's amazing how much we can paralyze ourselves, beloved, when we have a wrong view of the past. Now, the Bible teaches us to have a correct view of the past. There are obvious, obviously events and situations in our past that may prompt us to praise the Lord or embolden us to serve Him in greater ways. God Himself, when addressing the Israelites, often refers to himself as the God of their fathers who delivered them from the, from the bondage of Egypt. Deuteronomy is filled with God's commands to leave uh, to them, rather, not to forget his ways, his track record of great acts of saving grace and his commands and statutes. We all can look back and see how the hand of God moved in our lives as well, how he arranged certain events to come in and out of our lives for our benefit. Israel was to teach the next generation through festivals that recreated the mighty acts of God in, in the past so that these acts would forever be carried forward in the consciousness of God's people. The sign of the new covenant is the Lord's Supper, which we do in remembrance of the death of Christ. Yes, we're to remember the past, we're to treat the past correctly, but having said that, there is plenty in our past that we need to forget, and we need to move on. Don't dwell on past sins that you've confessed, don't hold records of wrongs against others. Paul himself put away childish things once he became mature, a mature man in Christ. He told the Philippians, one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, and I reach forward to what lies ahead. God tells Israel in Isaiah 48, 18, forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. See, I am doing a new thing. For Israel, that was returning to the promised land after seven years of captivity, which would have outshined even the exodus of Egypt. For us today, it's the day when we leave this world and join Christ our Lord in the eternal state. It's a foolish thing to dwell on past glories. Do you realize that? on the good old days, as it were, when life was simpler and kinder or exciting and challenging, when you were younger and stronger and healthier? Or are you, whatever, fill in the blank, when joy inexpressible awaits us in heaven, it's foolish to dwell on the glories of the past. Hear, hear the exhortation from 1 Peter 1.13, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. That's what you need to set your mind on. 
not past glories. But I also want to say how foolish it is to think that the best days of your life are now past. And the only thing worth doing now is to dwell on them. What a pathetic existence. Not only does it stifle your service for God, it's not true. Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived next to the Lord Jesus Christ, wrote this, Do not say, Why is it that the former days were better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask about this. Hmm. I would submit to you that for the Christian who has stayed on Christ, the best time of his life is always the present. It is always now. Why? Each day, you are closer to the return of Christ. That's why. You're closer to the return of Christ today than you were yesterday. Each day, we find God's mercies new. Each day is a day that we are that much more mature. We look more like Christ. We have a greater knowledge of Scripture. We have, we have the opportunity to invest more in the kingdom of heaven. We increase our testimony for Christ. And it is on these truths that the New Testament calls us to action. Paul says in Romans 13, And do this, understanding the present time. The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than than we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently. Clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of your flesh. If you're stayed on Christ then you have God's promise of future blessing and it is eternal. It will remain and it is what will make you courageous now. People who are stayed on Christ obey his word. They are obedient, they are courageous, and they are thankful. That's the last part of this. Be thankful worshipers and reverence God, verses 28 and 29. Therefore, since we're receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. This last section gives the final word on that which cannot be shaken, and it's God's kingdom, the better country. Those of us who are citizens of it And even now, partakers of this wonderful eternal life through the glorious gospel of Jesus, we're commanded to be thankful. Now let me say that another way. Christians are responsible to be thankful. Maybe you've never thought of thankfulness as one of your God-given responsibilities, along with godly parenting or being a godly spouse or a godly church member or an ambassador for Christ, a witness to the unbelieving world. Oh, yes. Yes, in fact, it's not only that, but it is a priority among them. The Old Testament certainly supports this. Thankfulness is the one word that perhaps best describes the Yahwist, the believer in Messiah. The genuine believer in Israel would never think of receiving God's blessings in his life, both present blessings and those that are still future to him, and not return thanks. He was thankful. 
If he didn't, that would mean that he was ungrateful, that he was unsatisfied with God, with God's salvation, God's determined lot for his life. So many Christians are unsatisfied with their lot in life. It has come by the merciful hand of a good sovereign. David epitomized the thankful worshiper in Psalm 16. Listen to verses 5 to 11. Lord, you alone are my portion and my cup. You make my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Every, uh, even at night, my, my heart instructs me. I keep my eyes always on the Lord. With him at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful one see decay. You may... You make known to me the path of life. You, you will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. You share those sentiments. If gratitude does not characterize your life, if you're not known by others, even by unbelievers, as a grateful person, it means that you reject God's lot for you. It, it never bodes well. By the way, for those who grumble and complain among God's people, never did in the Old Testament. God simply opened the earth and they fell in and he closed it behind them. Do you believe that God is your good sovereign who is out for your good to make you more like Christ and has a great inheritance for you? Do you believe that or not? We're responsible to acknowledge this sincerely by giving thanks to God by praising the Lord both privately and in the assembly and wearing our hearts of gratitude on our sleeves that others might know how good and how gracious our God is. Christians are more than all people. Christians have much to be thankful for. God through Christ has taken away their hell and given them heaven. We show just how thankful we are when we listen to him. Those in the church who say that they're so thankful to God for giving them what they have but don't obey his word, they're, they're not genuinely, genuinely thankful. Beloved, if you're thankful that God saved you, then you'll live your life for him. You'll show how thankful you are for the Bible by knowing it well and applying its principles. For the indwelling Holy Spirit, by being filled with his truth, for for God's forgiveness by forgiving others, for God's love by loving others. So when we're thankful in heart and practice, we will be sure to give God worship that he finds acceptable. That is, worship with reverence and awe. This is a worship that is totally God-centered, totally Christ-centered, and even spirit-driven. That is, it is not man-centered, not motivated by self-esteem. There is no promotion of self or feelings of self-worth or entitlement in true worship of God. No, to worship with reverence and awe is to understand our own insignificance and our unworthiness before the infinite majesty of him before whom we serve. This kind of worship is a manifestation of our deep love and our loyalty and our gratitude to God. 
Well, the writer closes out this section by reminding his church audience that our God is a consuming fire, which tells us, by the way, that the God of Sinai is the same God as Zion. Isn't that interesting? We knew that. So many people don't. But more than that, it is really a warning. He wants all of us to think soberly about our Christian life. It's God's, not ours. He's entrusted us with it. And he expects us to glorify him with it. It's not ours to play fast and loose with. So many Christians have this idea that being a Christian gives them the assurance of heaven without any of the responsibility of godliness. Like the old Miller Lite tagline. Remember that? Everything you always wanted in a beer and less. They want light Christianity. Everything you want from God and less. But God is holy. We must be holy. His holiness is not something to take lightly. God is a consuming fire. Handle fire with care, and it will warm you. It'll protect you from the elements. It will light your way in the dark. And it is a worthy energy source. Be irresponsible with it, and you could burn to death. Consequences of being responsible to listen to God leads to eternal life. Consequences of being irresponsible and refusing to listen leads to death. The second death. In conclusion, those who are stayed in Christ are, as we heard from 2 Peter 3.18, waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And until that day, they will be righteous. They will be obedient. They will be courageous. And they will be thankful. Father, we thank you.